Hello and welcome to the Drum Network Podcast. I'm Senior Reporter for Tech at The Drum, Chris Sutcliffe. As I say in the intro to our guests this week, behavioral science and its application to marketing is one of the most interesting topics in and around advertising at the moment. It's totally fascinating to see how the twin disciplines of psychology and marketing come together to really influence behavior change among audiences and consumers. So without further ado, I'm going to ask my guests to introduce themselves so we can get straight into the topic. Yep. Hello, I'm Jen Ecotorne. I'm a behavioral science research director at Walnut Unlimited. We are an insights agency. Um, and our main goal in life as Walnutters is basically to bring greater human understanding to all of our clients. So to dig deeper and to really understand why we all do what we do every day. Nice. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And Michelle? Hi, I'm Michelle Watson. Um, I'm the Principal Behavioural Consultant at MindWorks. Um, so we're a behavioural transformation consultancy, um, having a look both at customer experience and how we can use behavioural insights to better design experiences and interactions, but also looking within the organisation itself um, at the behaviours that we can shift within the organisation to help achieve business goals more effectively. Nice. That's fantastic. So not just an external facing view, but one internal as well. Yeah. Amazing. And last but not least, Mike. Hi, I'm Mike. I'm the head of behavioral research at, at J-Wing. Um, basically, we're an agency that specializes in integrated marketing. So we're full service, everything from TVs to tweets. And what we're trying to do is sort of design better digital experiences for our customers, trying to basically unlock revenue and sales most of the time. Nice. Absolutely fantastic. So we'll be able to go to you for some practical advice as well. Well, I'm delighted to have all three of you here because this is one of my favorite topics actually in and around marketing. Um, you know, ever, ever since I read a couple of books around this, the application of behavioral sciences and kind of, of behavioral practices to marketing is something that I know that not just myself, but the entire drums audience is really interested in. But at the same time, we can recognize that it is a little bit esoteric and a little bit high level. So Jen, could you almost give us a quick introduction to how um marketers tend to use behavioral thinking when they're actually applying it to their own work oh good question um so at walnut so we are researchers at the end of the day so we work with a lot of marketers and marketers tend to be our clients so we help them use it a lot that's a generally our role um and we use it um building in lots of different implicit techniques um so that might be neuroscience reaction time testing lots of behavioral science thinking um, and build that into all of the classic kind of traditional research and research insights we get. So very much we help marketers use it to understand what their customers are doing currently. So mm. kind of existing behavior, the behavior they're already doing to understand what's going on now and why they might be doing what they're doing. And then also on the other side of the scale, you start thinking about, okay, well, now we understand what people are doing. What can we do about that? How, what actions might we want them to actually be doing? What nudges, interventions, different things can we do to actually get them where we want them to be at the end of the day. So put simply, they're the two main bits that we end to apply some of this thinking. Uh, absolutely. And uh, honestly, it sounds difficult enough. I, half the time I find it hard enough to know why I'm doing the things that I'm doing. So God only knows how hard it is to actually apply that to consumer cohorts as well. Uh, Michelle, then what are some of the techniques that you, you employ in actually either gathering data on how people behave and why they behave and sort of how do you, how do you then put that into practice? Okay. Um, well, as Jen said, we always start with what the business outcome is, right? What is the desired behavior that we need to see in order to achieve business outcomes? 
Um, and then it's just having a look at any data sets that, you know, the client has available for us that, that would give us an indication as to what the current behaviors are. Um, because if we can see what the gap is between the current behaviors and the desired behaviors, that's the challenge is to close that gap. Um, and so in terms of collecting the data, that could come in a hundred different formats. I mean, sometimes, you know, clients are really data rich. They all over their data, they already have an, an idea of what those behavioral patterns are. In other cases, they've got, you know, a multiple disparate data sources that, you know, that we have to try and piece together. And in some cases, the data game's not great at all. And so we have any research that they've conducted, white papers. Um, now, the more data and insight we have, obviously, the more um, accurate we can be in, in kind of working out what those existing behaviors are. But we're in the absence of that data, then we would go to, you know, kind of do external research to try and build that picture. Um, and so it's very much a case of some of our clients are incredibly data rich, others aren't. And so it's never an, an even playing field. It's really just responding to what we see and, and what we can use. Yeah, absolutely. And we can absolutely chat around that kind of the, the disparity in terms of what people have access to in a little bit. But Mike, you were yeah. nodding along quite uh, vigorously there right at the start where Michelle was talking about yeah, it in business outcomes. I suppose, yeah, I suppose it's a thing that lots of us share in common, I guess, is that the best way to start is what is it that you want to achieve or what is the problem that you're trying to describe? Because if you don't make it, the best research has to be tangible to a business objective. And you have to sort of have metrics that let you know if you're hitting that or not. So as you start there and describe that problem, that then allows you to sort of paint a picture of whatever the problem is with various tools that you've got, whether that's data, whether that's running your own experiments to see what happens if, you've, for example, if you're on a customer's website, if we move this, what happens to try to unpick what people are doing. Um, there's loads of tools around AI as well. You can use like attention mapping tools, stuff like that. But basically, yeah, what it all starts off with is having a really good research objective and a really good set of research questions that are always tangible. And that way you can always design the appropriate response around that. And is that something that you find out that, that most clients of yours, they have already a good understanding of what they actually want to achieve? Um, <laughs> Michelle shaking my head already. Very, very, very yeah, um, I, I think in, in terms of what they want to achieve, yes, I think they have a, a clear idea of what they want to achieve in terms of tangible outcomes. I think that's less clear. Um, you know, so oftentimes, the, you know, we get a brief that is we want to, you know, have a look at the, the website that's underperforming or we mm. want to launch a campaign or we want to. So at a very high level, there's a clear idea of, of what their objectives are. But when you try and boil that down to specific behaviors, do you want increased basket size? Do you want, you know, improved ROI? Do you want, that's not so clear. And then I think that, you know, once you start to talk in those terms around tangible concrete behaviors that we need to see people exhibit in order to achieve those outcomes, that's when the conversation gets really interesting. And then oftentimes what happens is the brief gets withdrawn, everybody goes back to the drawing board, and then we get a, a more, you know, sort of um, detailed brief. Um, and oftentimes we're also involved in that process and helping to, you know, kind of refine that brief. Mm. So when you boil it down to those tangible behaviors and you give somebody, um, you know, or a client something to think about that is, you know, as I say, tangible and achievable, it helps to really kind of work through what the, the outcomes are. 
I mean, there's so much to unpick there, but just before we do, Jen, you were sort of nodding along. Is that sort of high-level approach something that you've seen as well, that marketers kind of understand what they want to achieve in a very broad term, but they don't necessarily understand the practicalities of it? Yeah, completely agree. It's something funny to the point that, yeah, most clients <laughs> come to us with similar challenges, very broad, very big, um, understandable, the problems they come to us. But one of the first things, and I think one of our first challenges is to go in there, almost consultants really, and go and go, what actually is the ultimate thing you want to find out and want customers to be doing? Um, and one thing I will say to them with when they're trying to, how can we start using behavioral science is think about the micro small behaviors that you want them to do and change. And then you can, that's when behavioral science is really best used because it often is those small actionable things that you kind of think that you can nudge and start doing it in interventions. So you have to get them thinking about that way to start off with. Nice. Fantastic. Well, let's just say then for argument's sake that the client knows exactly what they want, which it sounds like is quite a rare occurrence. But then, Jen, to stick with you, what would you say are some of the, the basic tools, I suppose, that you, you employ to begin with? Um, so we, as I said, we kind of, we're lucky at Warner in that we have a whole breadth of traditional and implicit techniques. So we kind of very much look at the challenge and think about the best tools to use for the best situation. Um, and as it's something we do all the day, we're in a best place to do that. But um, it can be um, some of the implicit techniques we use um, a lot are kind of IAT, um, kind of uh, testing that we can now do on an online situation. We've had um, really advances in stuff like facial coding mm. um, and eye tracking now that make all those what the techniques that used to be very academic that you had to use in a lab, you can now bring that into an online environment that means it's really accessible and we can start using it in a commercial setting um, way more than we used to be able to a few years ago. So they're ones that we use a lot. And then also we have our behavioral science side of things as well, which you know is a way of thinking rather than an approach in itself. Um, so that sits across everything and really allows us to interpret those results mm. um, because the implicit on their own still very much just answer the what's going on yes what's going on under, under the surface but you still need to the interpretation of why is that happening to understand how you can use that information yeah 100 i saw mike you were sort of nodding along there as well so to what without you know getting too much into proprietary things to what extent are the tools you used how much have they been revolutionized by tech over the last couple of years i would say well a lot, given something like AI, for example, with facial expression analysis, which is now possible, that's a huge advancement. Looking at things like attention mapping tools, the salience mapping tools that can now be driven by AI means that they can get even faster than eye tracking. Eye tracking is still the gold standard if you want to get samples and you want to get as close to real users in a real place as possible. But if you want feedback on creative, let's say you've got a TV ad campaign and you need to get it ready pretty quickly, which is mm. often the case in advertising. So then you can get very quick, very sharp, fast feedback about where people are likely to look and what's likely to happen. These days, you can turn over implicit studies as well using third-party tools or using your own tools if you've got them very, very quickly. So the speed at which this type of research can be done has been put is much quicker and much cheaper than it used to be. And I think that's one of the good things because it's removing one of the main blockers to the industry is that I think that people see it as a long, drawn-out thing doing research. Hmm. Research has to move at the speed of businesses. So... We need to start thinking about that stuff at a strategic level and then getting involved from the off. And that way we can start to say, what are the behaviors? What do we need to do? And build it into the cost, build it into the budget so that it's not like an afterthought, is this advert going to work? We know the advert's going to work because we've done the research and we've tested it and we've got the answer. 
Nice, fantastic. And thank you for giving me a title for this episode, by the way, which is The Research Moves at the Speed of Businesses. That's that's a fantastic aid to me. Thank you so much. Very welcome. <laughs> um, and so, Michelle, we were talking there about kind of the tech is easing, I suppose, some of the processes involved, mm-hmm. but there's still a lot of expertise involved in actually making the most of that data, isn't there? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think that, you know, to Mike's point about research moving at the, the speed of business, um, one of the things that that we do is uh, at MindWorks, um, we use mind states to kind of really help speed that along. So um, for us, discovery really starts at launch, um, but creating a set of mind states. So a mind state is representative of a need or a challenge that somebody has when they're engaging with a certain aspect of, you know, a brand service or, or offering. Um, what is the need or challenge that somebody would have that would influence the way that they perceive options and and their behaviors. Um, And once we've come up with those mind states, it's about designing experiences and, and, you know, creating hypotheses around those mind states and then launching with those. And that's the point at which discovery begins. Um, And I think that what's really interesting about that is it's a leap of faith for the client Mm. to, you know, kind of go live with something that really is unproven and untested at that point to a certain extent, um, because they have to be prepared to see things not working. Um, And as long as we can be, you know, sort of quick to react and quick to pivot when we see something isn't working, it's a really effective way of kind of developing uh, your understanding of, of, you know, sort of customer behavior. Um, but as I say, it is a leap of faith. And I think it's one of the biggest challenges that we have because it's so counter to how a lot of clients are used to working, which is extensive upfront research, you know, kind of personas that tend to be more rigid mm-hmm. um, so that when they go live with something, it, it's well, you know, sort of invested in and, and well thought through. And there's some degree of comfort in having spent, you know, a, a period of time thinking it through we you know sort of rush to launch and then start to react to what we see at that point and I think that that's where technology is really important and that's where the technology and and the art kind of come together which is making sure that you're designing experiences that are flexible that you can change that you can pivot really quickly if you need to Um, And so it's having the data coming in, it's being able to interpret that data, and then it's being able to respond to that in the way that you've designed and the way that you've constructed those experiences. Nice, fantastic. Before we move on, could you just give us a quick example of maybe a few mind states that you've got, whether that is, you know, priming consumers to be ready to add something to the basket, or what are some of those other mind states that you've engaged with? Yeah, so the mind states... um, there was a project that we worked on recently that I think has the the clearest, most obvious mind states. Um, click and collect. We were having mm-hmm. a look at at completely transforming a, a client's click and collect, um, you know, sort of program right through from product selection to return at a later date. So the reason somebody might be using click and collect could be that they, you know, it's convenience. They don't have the time to actually go into um, a store and browse that they want to select the items beforehand so that they can speed up that process. Um, a- another uh, example might be that, you know, they, they like to take, um, you know, a bunch of outfits home with them to their own home to try those on to really kind of test them out. Um, and another one might be that it's, you know, it, it's Christmas time, you've got a lot of shopping. So you've got sort of distinctive 
needs and preferences forming there's convenience there's exploration there's you know lack of time um you know people with kids so going into the stores watching people engage with the click and collect coming up to the lockers you know how and then having a look at the data that the the client has available how many things that from click and collect are returned how many products items are returned can we see behaviors forming there the mind states would then be um convenience uncertainty um you know sort of uh, time poor those needs and challenges will have an impact on how people behave so if somebody's looking for exploration they're more inclined to buy more and then return more and that's a very different experience than somebody who just doesn't have the time to go into the store and browse and just wants to, you know, get from product A through the process to collection mm. as quickly as possible. Yeah, so by understanding the difference between somebody who's in a more of a, an exploratory mindset and somebody who's just, you know, looking for convenience. It's not that we have distinct experiences, but it's making sure that we design experiences that cater to those different need states, um, because people in those need states will think and behave very differently. Um, and so that's that's one example. No, absolutely. That's that's really helpful. Thank you for actually putting a kind of a, a practical slant on this as well. And so, Jen, we were talking before about sort of the, um, I suppose, what you can actually offer to marketers with behavioral thinking, whether that is, you know, as, as myself flagged, uh, identifying a bunch of almost primed states that the consumers approach kind of brand relationships with. So to what extent then is a lot of your work about almost educating brand clients about what is possible and what they should be looking at? Um, yes. Yeah, so something that we do actually um, offer is behavioral thinking um, mm. training as well as the research itself. Um, because a lot, of, a lot of the clients will kind of feed in a little bit in projects, kind of pepper a few principles here and there, things they could do. And they go, oh, that's really interesting. I've read, say, some of the more trendy books that are out there. What are we talking, thinking fast and slow? Yeah, exactly. I really like that, but I've no idea how to get that into my work. Um, We even have work streams in clients where you've got like 12 of them. We just kind of pull together because we think it's really cool. I don't know how to do it. Um, So very much, yes, with the education on the side of the sometimes just that you should be doing some of this implicit mm. work well, like what we were talking before about where you're looking at the a previous data and they haven't got any of the implicit attitudes it's just purely kind of the, the rational side of things you're like I can't answer your problem because you haven't got the implicit side of things and we can now put our hand up and go look I'm not going to answer that question because you're missing at least mm. half of the data that you need <laughs> so part of it is these are the tools that you could use so that's part of the education but then also we go in and we do actual training on behavioral science thinking as well kind of sprint training sometimes that's an hour sometimes they do whole programs just so that they can start using some of that thinking um, the principles within their day-to-day work as well so still very much is educational and there's a real um uh, one of the questions actually that I ask a lot of the clients is at, at a scale of one to 10, would you say you're 10 an expert in behavioral science or would you say you're a one, you've got no idea? And we still very much have a real split range both within the client and across clients. Mm. Um, considering it's been around a long time, then I don't know about you guys, but I think the majority is still interested, but don't really know how to apply it day to day in a commercial setting. And for the listeners, yeah, yeah everyone was nodding. Yeah, I think I think that's a really interesting point. And I'd be interested to know from you, the, the the training that you do, do you have to keep on doing that? Because one of the things, and when I say keep on doing that, I mean run multiple sessions over a period of time. 
Because one of the things that I think we've seen with clients is that there's this, you know, huge appetite for behavior change and behavioral economics. And as you say, everyone's read a book and, and they're really fascinated and interested. Um, but at a certain point, you know, uh, you can spend sessions and you can run workshops and then you come back six weeks later and it's all, you know, kind of fallen by the wayside. And I think that that muscle memory is so strong to work in the old, you know, sort of tried and tested ways and the ways that people have been working for the longest time. And I think that with all the willingness in the world, what we see is that there's a certain degree of, of you know, sort of upskilling you can do. And then it, it kind of falls away and people slip back into the bad patterns. So I, I'm really interested to know whether the, the, the way that you do the training, whether you see long lasting benefits or if that's something you have to keep on coming back to. Yeah. Well, it's behavioral science in action, I'd say. They're falling back into the defaults, aren't they? So completely yeah, as you're absolutely. seeing that. Um, and it's it's all about making it practical, I think. So it's one of, if mm -hmm. you get them using it straight away, again, using behavioral science, breaking it down into easy steps, making them see, you know, to see that they can use it, trying to break it down. Then mm -hmm. you see them starting to, it will actually stop in being embedded and used day to day. Whereas if it's quite theoretical, um, if it's something that it seems quite hard to do, all those kind of things and, and how it worked, then yeah, by all means, they're going to go, oh, this is too hard. I'm just yeah. going to go back into how I do it. It's all very nice. So yeah, I, it really, it really depends. And it kind of depends on the, on the challenge, um, the culture of the organization, classically, so yeah. lots of different things. So I wouldn't say all the time we have to go back in and repeat it. There are some clients yeah. who are really engaged and start using it a lot that it does become you, they almost bring the, you bring the language back at you which is quite nice when you yeah. go into other meetings and they start giving the principles and everything like oh you've been using it this is exciting <laughs> so you, you can get both sides well mike we yeah. were talking about practicalities there it looked like you wanted to jump in oh yeah it was just i was just going to agree basically that it's one of the things with training the stuff internally with clients is the long for us we have clients on retainer the retainer clients they spend a lot of time around us so they kind of learn faster but it's really great when you see an advocate somebody sees this stuff work, they realize the power of it. And next thing you know, they're bringing in you to other parts of the business, they're referring you to other clients because a lot of it's to do with self-efficacy. Once they know that it's doable and they know the amount of work that goes into it, they're willing to put that work in themselves. And that's, and that's a big part of it. It's also having the success stories internally and externally to really push that type of stuff. But there's definitely a need as well for continuous upskilling both internally and externally if you're gonna do yeah. this. Well, that leads me neatly onto my next question, because it sounds like this is such a rapidly moving discipline, not in terms of, I suppose, kind of some of the underlying theories, which are constantly it being science being checked and rechecked and proofed, but in terms of the tech that we can use to actually put it into effect. So Mike, just to stick with you then, what do you think are some of the most exciting developments in and around kind of behavioral marketing that you're most excited to see? So I think AI is offering some really interesting opportunities for things like personalization. I think that if we can collect the right types of data, now we've got the opportunity to do like one-to-one -one marketing or one-to-one -one machine learning. And as soon as we start to get into that position, it offers opportunities for things like personalization, which we can then use to sort of talk to people in language that they're interested in about things they're interested in. Mm. Marketing is all about, all about the right message at the right place at the right time to the right person. So if you've got the right AI tools collecting the data, you can start to build out these profiles of the type of people that you're dealing with, the different contexts, because context, as we've already alluded to, is critical to how quick context tends to frame people's thinking and actions. And then their personality tends to sort of vary to a point what they're likely to do in that situation. So if you can build out the context, but also collect some of that personality-based data, you can then very quickly start to run experiments online using sort of 
AI tools that get better and better. So we've run some experiments previously around things like when someone lands onto a landing page, we've had a ton of different sort of hero images, creative, different lines of copy. And we've tried different user groups with it in the lab, but we've also put that live and had an AI tool that basically learns which one's been more successful over time. Mm. And it starts to personalize it. And what we've done from there is draw out loads of different learnings about what message at which time of day, things like weather conditions can factor into people's decision-making, things like all different, there's so many different of different things, different types of language at different times can be really effective. But for us, I think that's really important. Something else that's coming up is obviously the, the use of things like EEGs and sort of biometrics in general becoming much more commonplace. It's something that's super exciting. Um, EEGs, measuring well electrical encephalograms to use a correct terminology thank um, you. I, I, was gonna, to, I was trying to look it up subtly in the background but no thank you for that yeah uh, basically measure people's brain waves and there's a wealth of information you can get about people's motivation about their emotional about how hard their brain's working as well so if someone's on an e-commerce website the e-commerce website has to be persuasive mm. it has to be fast but it also has to be frictionless and friction can come in loads of different formats so the trustworthiness of a website the visual overload, if there's too much information at once, the general usability, like we've all been on a website that's hard to use on our mobile phones before and been like, why is this designed like this? These are the types of things that we can start to draw out from a UX perspective using biometrics. And I think that's something that's really exciting. Yeah, 100%. Actually, just just before we move on to, to Jen and Michelle, I wondered, so much of what we're describing here, it almost feels like it's been driven by audience habits and changing audience expectations of what brands should be offering. Is there, I suppose, an early mover advantage in adopting some of these behavioral marketing techniques to actually ensure that you are ahead of where the consumer is going to be? I would say, I would say there's an opportunity to, to be early adopters because if you're empowering in the day, marketing is all about psychology. It's all about people. So the closer you can get to your audience, that's got to be a source of competitive advantage. Mm. So for me, being an early adopter of this stuff is definitely something worth doing. Nice, fantastic. And so, Jen, what do you think are some of the most exciting developments in and around kind of your your area of behavioral marketing and, and research? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, we do um, GSR and EEG and we even used MRIs a couple of times, which is quite, that's not something that you do very often, but that's quite exciting. Um, I don't know, I guess the watch out for those things are, they're quite, they are exciting, but they don't, you don't necessarily have to use them all the time. It's the whole thing, just because the tools are out there, mm. um, are they the right thing for the challenge? And I guess that's something going into this, like we've had virtual reality, I remember like, six years ago we were kind of using the headsets and going how can we use this in research and it was almost like forcing the tech into it and we've had a few examples where it's been there but I still don't know that like virtual reality has quite hit the mark in like going around stores with this huge headset you know some in some form but um the cost and actually the um positives of it as opposed to what, what you can get in other ways you know always balance out um I, I mean I agree I think big data is really interesting I still think mm. in terms of I'm always like because we we have um realize unlimited is a sister, sister company of ours uh that um are experts in kind of all the big data and I still want to I don't know if we've utilized like really building up all this big behavioral data sets um matching it with kind of all the theoretical um sort of things for me i get excited by that and what the opportunities could be in terms of mer merging them all together um and with ai things like sentiment analysis i know there's so many options out there but i still haven't quite found anything that works how i want it to let's put it that way um i'm all up for ideas if anyone's got some of the things works <laughs> so i think there's lots of really lots of exciting opportunity stuff out there um but still very much kind of I'm of the mind of just 
I suppose using it when it really answers the questions I want it to. Yeah, absolutely. Rather than just being fun. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I can introduce you to any number of people who pitch me on a daily basis around sentiment analysis. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah no, me too. You get hundreds <laughs> in, don't you? Like, yeah, I know you say you can do that. Yeah. But I'll wait and see. It'll be fascinating if it does work. I wondered what, just before we move on to you, Michelle, what would be some of the best use cases you think for actually using sentiment analysis in a marketing perspective? Um, I think for really for me, it's about saving time. So just being rather than having to go through all the data and um, hearing the language that people are using. So from just a language analysis, kind of the semiotics, the cultural side of things. Um, also, I mean, you've got social media listening is a classic classic thing that goes out. But really, from a qual research side of things, you get so much data and having to read through and all the transcripts and everything else that it would really looking at all the patterns out there and I think being able to delve even even more into things to unravel patterns and behavior than we do now um that's what I'd like to do saving time but also uncovering even more yeah absolutely that makes that makes total sense and Michelle we were talking earlier about kind of the the behavioral uh, marketing techniques you can use both internally and externally so what are some of the, mo- the things you're most excited about, whether that is within the organizations themselves or actually in the kind of consumer facing side? Um, I think within the organizations themselves, the thing that I get the most excited about is seeing, you know, large organizations like, you know, HSBC reworking their processes internally so they can be quicker to respond, um, you know, to, to changes that they see. So, you know, in an organization where it could take up to two months to approve, you know, messaging in an email to, you know, think about the way that it goes through all of those layers of approval and legal. And the thing that really excites me the most is, is, you know, the the behaviors internally and how those are starting to shift and how we're starting to see the pace quicken and how we're starting to see, you know, sort of clients embracing this, idea of being responsive and being reactive to those behaviors. Um, You know, and and it might not seem like a lot, but when you've been working, you know, with those organizations and when you see the the pace at which change happens, the fact that that's really speeding up and how quickly it's speeding up is really encouraging. Um, And I think that the key in that is is simplicity. It's not overwhelming, you know, clients with with too much, with too much of the theory and the logic. And and it's just about breaking things down um, into, I think, um, Jen, you were saying into actionable, you know, sort of items and, and, and briefs and changing processes just slightly here and there so that you can see a slight outcome. And then as people start to see the value in those changes, so that appetite widens and, and we start to see the, the rate of change within the organization kind of pick up. So with that confidence comes a readiness to bypass some of the bureaucracy and and I think that that's the most exciting thing. And, and you know, some of the clients that we work with and, and the way that they've changed how they approach pro- projects and the way that they work is, is really encouraging. Um, I would say the other thing, and, and again, coming back to these mind states, when we've identified a set of mind states, it allows us to be far more accurate with our targeting when we're going out looking for those, those audiences. So if we're dealing, for example, with a a segment um, that is ultra high net worth segment and what we're trying to talk to them about is foreign exchange, 
why not have a look at, at, you know, sort of communities that are looking to send their kids to Ivy League colleges and to try and hit them at that point with foreign exchange messages and mortgages and and, and so it just allows us to be far more accurate in the targeting to make sure that we're tapping into people we know already have this mind state, bringing them back to a message that is relevant. And the results that we've seen have just been astounding. So um, those are the two things, the accuracy of the targeting, the conversion that we've seen off the back of that accuracy, but mostly just how clients are, are leaning forward and, and changing their internal structures and their internal processes to embrace you know, this kind of behaviorally charged approach um, is just really encouraging. And, and we're seeing results across the board, which is, you know, which is fantastic and great for clients as well. 100%. And we could have dug into any one of the things that you've all mentioned today. And I'm sure that, fingers crossed, we'll all get to come back and have a more in-depth chat about this in the very near future. But as a final question, I wondered if anybody who's listening does want to get in contact with you and pick your brains about any one of those topics that you've spoken about, where's the best place for them to reach you? Company website, LinkedIn, Twitter. Jen, where's the best place for them to find you? I'd go to walnutunlimited.com where you can reach me or one of my many colleagues. Nice, fantastic. And Michelle? Uh, mindworksconsulting.com. Again, I think it's yeah, really, really easy to contact us through there. Nice, finally. And Mike? Um, either via LinkedIn or via jwing.com. Perfect. Well, honestly, thank you so much for this. This is, like I said, it's from from for my money, it's the truest representation of what we say, what we mean when we say that marketing is that kind of intersection of science and art. So it's been absolutely fascinating to discuss with all of you today. Hopefully we'll get to do it again in the near future. But for now, Jen, Michelle and Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Drum Network podcast. Thank you, guys. Great, thank, thank you. you. Fantastic. And for everybody listening at home, please do stick around. Go to thedrum.com where there are far more articles that can explore any of these topics in greater depth than we could on this commutable length podcast. But for now, thank you and goodbye.